in this episode of Boss Files. My parents really are that embodiment of the American dream. My dad worked several jobs at a time. My mom did piecework at home just to sort of make a, make a living and provide for me. Geisha Williams. She made history becoming the first Latina CEO of a Fortune 500 company. Born in Cuba, she came to the United States with her parents at just five years old. Today, she is leading California's largest utility and has committed to delivering 50% renewable energy by 3030. I just fell in love with the field of energy and electricity. And it just, it's this silent enabler. It's what powers America, what powers commerce. And I fell in love with the culture of this industry. Very service oriented, very much focused on the community. And I just, I loved it, I got hooked. Plus her take on immigration and so-called dreamers. Why she calls immigrants a secret weapon benefiting this country. I sat down with Geisha Williams at Fortune's Most Powerful Women's Summit. Geisha Williams, it's nice to have you. Thank you for having me. Congratulations on your fairly new position. Yeah, I'm very excited. President and CEO of PG&E. There is a lot to cover here, but let's begin with the beginning. Let's begin with your story and the history that you have made becoming CEO of a Fortune 500 company. You are the first Latina female to become CEO of a Fortune 500 company. Congratulations. Thank you. It's hard to believe that I'm the first. I really couldn't believe it when I first started hearing that. It's about time. It really is. I can't believe that it's in the energy industry too, right? Who would have thought that? That's true. You have said there is, Geisha, a part of you that that still believes that five-year-old immigrant to the United States, part of yourself, that still asks, was it all a dream? Is it all a dream? I Absolutely. I mean... How can that be, right? This five-year-old little girl coming here with her parents from Cuba, English, I didn't speak English, you know, going to Minnesota, which was unbelievably cold. The the best state. Awesome state. In the country, if you ask me and my unbiased opinion. It's it's a great state, but (laughs) wow, is it cold. My parents will tell you they had culture shock, but they had more temperature shock than anything else. I believe that 100%. We ended up in New Jersey, um, where there was just a lot of jobs, a lot of factory work Mm -hmm. for immigrants. And and my parents really are that embodiment of the American dream. My dad worked several jobs at a time. My mom did piecework at home just to sort of make a, make a living and provide for me. And so when I look at those early years coming to this country, the struggles that we had, because it was hard. And here I am, CEO of PG&E Corporation, a Fortune 200 company. It's like, are you kidding me? Does this happen anywhere but America? I don't know. It, it does happen, uh, you know, as we say, perhaps should have happened sooner and we should see it in more sectors, but it has happened. Is it true that you came with your family with only the clothes on your back? You guys really had nothing. Nothing. We had the clothes on our backs um, at the time. This is in the 60s. My, you know, my parents were political dissidents. Your dad was in jail for he three years. He was a prisoner, uh, a political prisoner for his views that were against the communist regime. And we, you needed a sponsor, someone that would basically help you along here in the United States. And she lived in St. Paul, Minnesota. Mm. She passed away like a month after we arrived. We barely made it out. And of course, after she passed away, there was no reason to stay in Minnesota, which is why we moved to, to, uh, to New Jersey. But yeah, we had nothing, absolutely nothing. And when we were asked to leave Cuba, middle, to me it was like middle of the night. It might have been 9 o'clock or something. Really? You had no... No warning. No warning. They basically knocked on the door. My mom will tell you that she was... She had, it was, must have been like 8 or 9 o'clock at night. We had just finished dinner. 
and she still had the dishes and pots and pans out. They did not allow her to clean up. We had to leave. It was like, get right up away. and go, lock the door, and off we weren't, you know, to my, my aunt's house, you actually. You were five? I was five. Do you remember at all or shortly thereafter what your parents said to you about America? My parents had always had a very positive view of America, um, they, the ideals of America. And so they've always, and to this day, feel an incredible appreciation and gratitude that America took them in as political refugees. Mm -hmm. So I had, I was afraid. I remember crying uh, in my grandmother's arms uh, when we were getting ready to leave, and my mom sort of whispering to me and saying, I need you to stop crying because if you don't stop crying, they may not let you leave with us. Can you imagine hearing that as a child? But I, I listened, I stopped crying, and we got on that plane and first came to Miami, got processed, ended up in St. Paul, and a few months later we were in New Jersey. Let's talk about your parents and let's start with, with your father yep. because he had been in prison with no explanation in Cuba for three years. Yeah, suspicion of being against the government, that was enough. That if, was it? That was it. If, if they had proof that he was against the government, he would have been shot. So, yeah. So three he years. lived, thank goodness. Three years. Your family escapes to America. Yes. Political refugees with nothing. Your father works three jobs mm -hmm. at the same time, right? right? What right. did he do? So he worked in factories during the day, and some, one of the factories was making cardboard boxes, another one was making plastics, you know, different factories at different times. And then in the evenings, he would wash dishes at the local restaurant. And then on weekends, he would stock shelves at the local grocery yeah. store. So he was just constantly working. Again, there were no days off. No days off, no days off, and my mom, who didn't really want to leave me in any kind of daycare. She did piecework at home. So she cut embroidery. She made pennies for every dozen of these little cuttings that she put together. But somehow, I, I don't know how they did it, but somehow they were able to save enough money and they knew that they needed to sort of get out of this factory work. And right. they bought a little grocery store. And that grew? And that grew and they sold it. They flipped it, made some money on it, made, bought a bigger one and then another bigger one and so forth and so on until eventually they ended up being part owners of a, of a supermarket in Newark and then also in Miami. My, um, so, I'm, I mean, they're just amazing people. You were taught clearly the value of hard work from them. They didn't have to teach you. I mean, you just, it was on display seven yeah. days a week, 24 seven for you. And I read that you would, and I was picturing little Geisha doing this, stack up rice bags. Stack up rice bags in with like plywood on the back so I could do my homework in the stock room quickly. So then I could go to the cashier to relieve my mom so she could go make some dinner. Mm. Uh, and then I would help my father close the store most of the time. My homework usually done by then. It was, it was hard. It was a hard life. But you know what? It was a good life. I felt so a part of the family business. I was integral to it. And I, you know what? I don't have any regrets. It was a very good life. Are your parents still alive? Yes, they are. So they are alive, both yes. of them. Yes. So what do they think? Our daughter's CEO of one of the biggest companies they, in America. They are over the moon. Oh my gosh. They're so proud, so happy. Um, they're just, to them, it's like the sacrifice was worth it. I mean, they can't hardly believe it, but they are so unbelievably proud. My mom will tell you she can believe it. She always knew. I'm like, yeah, okay, mom. <laughs> but very, very happy. Really wonderful. I talk to them daily. Sometimes do. I do. Sometimes twice a day. I stay very connected with them. They're in Miami. I'm in California. 
it's yeah. been very difficult to be apart from them, but they're doing great and they're just lovely, lovely people. Has part of you felt like you owed it to them for all they sacrificed oh, for all, all Absolutely. I felt like I definitely needed to live a good life and make it worthwhile and really show everything I could accomplish. But, absolutely. But you had no idea this would be your field. I mean, you, from all accounts, fell into this. You, you got an engineering degree, University <laughs> yes. of Miami, which, by the way, far too few women and girls even right. feel like right. they have that opportunity in engineering and the sciences. But then you randomly get this job. Is it true? You So you see these job postings, you see a yellow yes. sticky note, and it reads, engineers wanted call Rick. Call Rick Fernandez. I think so it was his no name. last name. I think it was Fernandez, but maybe oh, Rick not. Hernandez, Rick okay. Fernandez. I, it was call Rick, summer intern, engineer. Right? So and I, was like, I called him on the spot, and he was like, when can you start? A summer job, summer job. Great summer job. And it was in that summer job that I fell in love with the field of energy and electricity. And it just, it's the silent enabler. You know, I mean, it's, it's what powers America, what's, what powers commerce. And I fell in love with the culture of this, of this industry, very service oriented, very much focused on the community. And I just, I loved it. I got hooked. And so when I graduated from college, I only applied to the local power company and I, and I was hired. And you worked there for? 24 years. 24 years. 24 years. But you still didn't think, Geisha, that you could be or would be CEO, would be a leader. Your mentor is someone that you credit with, with so much of this, a man from Georgia. You call him a role model for what diversity and inclusion means. And he is the one that asks you the central question. The central question that changed your life, I think that's fair to say. I, I think it did. Yeah, what, absolutely. What did he say? He's my mentor. And so he said to me one day, uh, so Geisha, what are your long-term career aspirations? And I, you know, I didn't, I had pretty modest um, aspirations at that time. And so um, I said, oh, I mean, I, I'd like to be a supervisor or a manager. And he goes, no, 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 you know, long-term, long-term. Well, I kind of was talking long-term. And he said, Geisha. Somebody has to run this company someday. Why not you? Now that floored me, right? Why not me? What, is this guy kidding? I, you know, women weren't running companies. Latina women weren't running companies. Immigrants weren't running companies. So I thought that was just ridiculous. This was what year, roughly? 85, 86. It was a long time ago. And so he pulls out this org chart and... Uh, he shows me who all the division leaders are and the vice presidents of the different departments. And I noticed a couple of things. First, a lot of them had engineering degrees. Yeah, I, had an, I, I had an engineering degree, so I'm like, check, that's, that's good. And then the second thing I noticed is that a lot of them had deep experience in the operations. Mm. And I thought, he and I talked about it, and he said, you know, if I get that experience, if I do well, why not me? Maybe not CEO. I mean, I just don't, I still didn't believe that. But maybe I could do better than manager. Maybe I could be a director or an officer. So he really inspired me. He's the first person I called when I became CEO. What's his name? Clark Cook. And he was so proud and so happy. I don't think there's another person in this world that was happier for me than my parents, than Clark, when I gave him the news I, about becoming I, CEO. I bet. Yeah. Because he saw it in you before you saw it in you. But Geisha, this isn't just you. I mean, this is a phenomenon. There's a, a brand new study out from, from, from Corn Ferry and the Rockefeller Foundation. They interviewed 57 current and, and former female CEOs in Fortune 1000 companies. 65% of those women said they never thought about being CEO. Right. 
until someone else said to them, why not you? Right. You have the potential. It's, it's the power of mentorship. It's the power of influence and having someone that you look up to tell you that they think that you can do something that you don't think you can do yourself. Is it unique in part to women? I think to some degree. I, I, I don't know that it's unique to women, but I, I do think women suffer a little bit from not believing that they have enough experience, not believing that they have enough skill and, and hold themselves back. No, that's somebody else's job. I do think that we, we sometimes are our worst critic, and, uh, and we do tend to listen to that little voice a little bit too much inside our head that says, you're not ready, you're not ready. And you say you are ready and have, in your words, permission to go for it. Permission to go for it. I, I mean, it was awesome. And so I, I didn't know that I was going to become CEO at that point. I, I, I doubted it, but I thought, I'm going places. I am going to work hard, and I am going to be a leader in this did company. You start, I mean, did you start, because a lot of people say, and I believe no one represents you better than yourself, did you start lobbying for it? I mean, in direct and indirect ways, did you at some point decide in your mind, Geisha, I want this, I am going to do everything I can to get this? Absolutely. I started looking at, again, not the CEO job, but jobs that were higher level in mind that I was interested in. And I kept looking at what's the path to get there. I was very purposeful about my career choices. And so I have a very broad utility background. So I have marketing skills. I have business development skills. I have operating skills. I have customer service skills. I have market research skills. And that's on purpose because I have external affairs skills. And I recognize that those skills were necessary to achieve higher levels of progression. And so I, was, I went for it. I, I, I was assertive with my career goals. Mm -hmm. And I had a tremendous amount of difficult assignments uh, thrust my way. I took jobs other people didn't take because they were really difficult jobs with a lot of high risk. I viewed the high risk jobs as another opportunity to excel and to showcase my capability. More from my interview with PG&E President and CEO Geisha Williams after the break. So as you rose up the ranks before you became CEO, and I yep. find this with many CEOs, there are tests that they are faced with, either placed on them or that are of circumstance. Yes. And, and the company, the, the board, et cetera, leadership sees, is she up? Is he or she up to the job? For you, you led a decision to close down Diablo Can Canyon, uh, California's last nuclear plant. It will begin in, in 2024, so we're a ways out. But it was a controversial move, and you had to get a lot of stakeholders from a lot of different parties on the same page. Not an easy feat. Environmentalists worried that you might replace it with a fossil fuel plant. They were concerned about that. You had all different factions concerned. You came out, you committed to a greenhouse gas-free plan. And some folks pointed to that as your, sort of your test, your ability, your final exam to becoming CEO. Was it? I, I think it might have been. Um, and you know what? It wasn't just me. It was a great team of people. That, that I put together that were instrumental in coming up with the various components of this proposal ultimately. But in the end, it was about finding common ground through a broad coalition mm -hmm. and, and really charting a course for what was the right thing to do for the state in terms of this plant? What was the right thing for our employees who are so phenomenal? How do we make sure we take care of our community? Mm -hmm. And taking care of all those needs, it was very comprehensive. I'm very proud of it. But very candidly, how did you get the public to trust you? Because, I, I mean, I think you know that energy executives aren't always among the most trusted. They aren't. 
Um, whether that's right or wrong, how did you get people to trust you? I think it wasn't just me. It, you know, when you stand up there and you're advocating for the proposal that we did, over one shoulder I had a labor leader, over another shoulder I had um, uh, the executive director of Friends of the Earth. Mm -hmm. I mean, talk about very diverse perspectives to the utility one, and we were all saying the same thing. We were all advocating for that same mm -hmm. common sort of ground uh, position. And so I think it is about coalitions. I think that's one of my strategies for really getting work done. Nobody has all the answers. Let's bring diverse perspectives together and let's figure out what the best path forward is. And so I think it was that coalition building that ultimately allowed us to be successful. And by the way, um, the regulator, our California Public Utility Commission, has not yet finalized that proposal. It's in the works, but I'm, I'm confident that You're they confident? will. I am. I am. PG&E had its huge crisis. You yes. call it its largest crisis before you were CEO, but you, yes. you, were, you were very much there. 2010, uh, the San Bruno gas line explodes. Eight people are killed. 38 homes are destroyed. Reputation is, is really tarnished. Yes. You guys ultimately pay a $1.7 billion penalty. Criminal responsibility later found for, for the pipeline management when you learn lessons from that and you think, in my CEO seat now, if I face a crisis, if I face a tragedy akin to this, and we hope no one does, what did you learn? You know, that was, I think, one of the darkest periods in, in our history, but certainly for the town of San Bruno. What they went through, I can't imagine how devastating. I mean, eight people lost their lives. You went. You were on scene. I was on scene. I was on scene. Um, it changed me, I think, as a leader. It made me realize that as much as we have lots of goals and objectives as a company, nothing is more important than the safety of the, of the community that you serve, of the customers that you have the, 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 the privilege to serve, of the people that work for you. Nothing is more important than safety. I think it's made me a, a, a zealot when it comes to safety. That's the biggest lesson. And you don't, th I mean, one would think that that is sort of number one for executives. I, You're being. It, I, it was. I felt like I am safety first, safety first. <gasps> Absolutely. I'm all in on safety. And I was. This is at a whole different level. It's all about looking at your risks, your enterprise risks, your operational risks, and coming up with specific plans to de risk your assets, your processes, at such a fundamental level. We thought we were doing it, but as I look back in hind, you know, with retrospect, not as well as we're doing today. Why? I well, why know. do you think, was it uh, too much focus elsewhere? Was it a lack of, of money put into maintenance? What was the lesson that you will not allow again to happen as CEO? I looked at reliability as a proxy for safety. Okay. Reliable operations means safe operations. And I think for the most part that that is often the case. But there is system safety that, is, that just takes it to a whole different level. It's not unlike when an airline has a tragic uh, plane crash and what they learn from it afterwards and how it changes them. I think about Alaska Air and the kind of company they are today. They are safety leaders uh, that we admire, that we look up to. Hmm. And it's the transformation that occurred at Alaska Air after their tragic accident in the, I think it was in the 80s. So I think something about a horrible accident causes you to look more deeply, more introspectively at everything you do 
through a more defined lens. It, it, we thought we were safe. We thought we were doing things well. Of course we did. Absolutely. But now it's at a whole different level, and that's a lesson I'll never forget, ever, ever. As you think about leading this company and being an energy leader in this country into the future, you have many more competitors. It's not, the, it's not the people that we pay our gas and electric bills to right now. It is offshoots, big tech companies, Google, Amazon, Apple. These are competitors in the space too. How do you, how do you get your mind around that? Are they, what, what, you know, what kind of competition do they present that's different than the traditional players? I, you know, I don't think of them as competitors. They're just they're, they're just providing services and products that are new and exciting and innovative. And I think we... Oh, come on. You I, don't think of them as competitors at I, all? No, I don't. I think that there's an opportunity to partner with some of these guys okay. so that we can deliver services on behalf of a utility that our customers want that others can provide. So, for example, um, distributed energy resources like solar rooftop units. We have more than anyone in the entire country. 20% of private solar is in our service area. We don't think of them as competitors. At the end of the day, they're, they're integrated, they're connected to the grid that we're responsible for. So how do we make sure that grid is reliable and providing them the backup power they need at night when the sun's not shining? How do we make sure that that resource that they're putting on the grid in the middle of a day is safely distributed to the rest of the system, they're becoming an extension, an extension of an electric grid. So it's really about figuring out how does our role change? We become a system integrator, not necessarily just a wires company. So it's, it's really different. I don't think of them as competitors. They're just a different product that's now on the grid. But you do keep your eye on what's going on in the space. Well, of I keep course. an eye on everything that's going on in the space. <laughs> when I think of energy, Mainly, I do think of wind and solar, and mm-hmm. nuclear, but mainly I still think of traditional fossil fuels, right? Coal, oil, nat gas, et cetera. Um, how, I have an 18-month-old daughter. How do you believe, Geisha, because part of your job as CEO yeah. is to look to the future, how will she think of energy? It's a different way of asking what's America's energy future. I think she'll think of it as more clean. I think it's going to be more distributed. It's going to be not coal-based. It's not going to be, I think... Um, well, natural gas plays an important role. I think sure. nuclear plays an important role. I don't think coal is the future. I really don't. But the um, president says this is mm-hmm. the future. I know. I don't think so. Um, I think coal played an important role. Uh, I don't believe that it's as economic. It's certainly not as clean. And so here in California, anyway, you know, my utility, PG&E, has zero coal. We only have three natural gas fire power plants. of the electricity that we deliver our customers is greenhouse gas free. Our reliability has never been better. Our customer bills are 20 to 30% lower than the national average. Our system is safe. We've created jobs. Our economy is booming. So I think that California can be an example. I really believe it can be an example to the rest of the country of how to do this properly. What about the situation is very different in terms of energy sources in Appalachia, right? Right. and, And that region. Uh, large, large numbers of, of voters who supported mm-hmm. the president, largely because, in part at least, he promised these jobs would come back, these coal jobs, these good-paying energy jobs. I've been in the field with them. Mm-hmm. I've spent time with them. What is your message to, to them about good-paying energy jobs coming back? Well, you know, not every state is as diverse as California. We really have some incredibly diverse natural resources. Mm -hmm. We have high-quality wind. We have high-quality solar. 
We have biomass, we have hydro, we have geothermal. When you bring all those resources to bear, it's why we've been so successful at being able to provide such a clean energy mix. I understand that that's not going to be the case in every state around the country. But there are clean energy opportunities in, in those states. I think there are. I think there are. And I think what California has done is demonstrate that it can be done. I think we've also driven the market and the cost of renewable production way down so that in the future, when states are ready, and I really believe it's a state-by-state state decision. I really do. When states are ready to go to higher levels of renewables, the market's going to be there, the costs are going to be more competitive, and it's going to be more viable. You run California's largest utility. The, the opportunity is huge. The challenge is huge. California's mandate strictest of any yeah. of any state, uh, requiring 50% of utilities be powered, generated by renewables by 2030. Um, Fortune has reported that you guys are past your, your target for those goals yes. so far. Yes. You're hopeful? I'm confident. Uh, we're at 33% of our power that we deliver to our customers today comes from renewables. Mm-hmm. Uh, We'll make 50% by 2030. I'm confident of that. And actually, we've taken a higher goal. We've said we want to be at 55% by 2031. And uh, absolutely, I'm confident we can do it. We have to do it. The state has a very bold um, energy sort of policy uh, in place. It wants to not only have renewables 50% by 2030, but the big story is it wants to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 40% from 1990 levels. That's 13 years away. Yeah, so we it's soon, it's soon it's soon and you know where the secret is going to be transportation and we heard from Mary Barra talking about electric CEO vehicles GM. how cool was that they're right betting on the, they're betting the future they're electric. betting the future on electric vehicles and to some degree we are too because in order for California to achieve its deep carbon reduction goals mm-hmm. it has to electrify transportation mm-hmm. and again my company the utilities in California are going to play an important role in that. As we wrap up, let's end where we began, and that is on immigration. There yes. is a raging immigration debate in this country. And just a, f- a few questions on that. Um, the president's decision to end the DACA program, and he has expressed a desire to make it permanent through legislation in Congress. He wants some gives from Democrats on that one. Where do you fall on these 800,000 dreamers in this country? You know, I. Uh... <laughs> I think immigration is such an important part of America's success in the past. Immigrants have, and I guess I have a very biased view of that, but immigrants bring energy, they bring innovation, they bring creativity, they bring that hunger for advancement and for betterment. And I think it's been an absolute secret weapon that the United States has. A secret weapon? A secret weapon. Immigration is part of the fabric of who we are. And I think, I mean, think about the people that choose to leave everything behind. What are they made of? Think about the courage that takes. So your message to lawmakers in Washington is? Find, find a way. Because I totally understand that, look, we do have national security issues. We have to, I, I get it. We have to control our borders. Of course we do. But I have to believe that there's a way that we can do both. Continue to be an immigrant-friendly nation 
and at the same time have our national security goals met. There has to be a way. I'm a coalition builder. I find common ground with Friends of the Earth and Labor on shutting down a nuclear plant. Washington could use a little bit of coalition building. Coalition build, figure out how to do it. There is a way. I'm confident there's a way. Let's make it work because immigration is so centrally important to our country. Do you believe uh, what you have seen, the actions and the rhetoric out of the Trump administration, out of the White House, represents the view that immigrants are valuable to this country? I mean, you were an immigrant from Cuba, five years old. How do you see it? Well, you know, it's hard for me to tell what is what's real versus the rhetoric. Mm. I, at the end of the day, I think we all are trying to do whether we're, you know, Republicans, Democrats. I think everyone wants to do what's in the best interest of the country. We just have different points of view. We have to respect those differences, but we shouldn't turn our backs on immigrants. I think that they are, again, lifeblood and a critical component of what's made America great. Finish the sentence for me. I will have succeeded as CEO if. I will have succeeded as CEO when PG&E transforms itself from simply delivering electrons and gas molecules to being a climate solutions, energy solutions company. When, not if. When. That is confidence. Yes. Congratulations. Thank Thank you very much. It was wonderful. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Boss Files. If you're a new fan of the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and subscribe. While you're there, leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. As always, you can follow me at Poppy Harlow CNN. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii.